Hello and welcome to this very special edition of Rasslin Memories Online at RadioNorthland.org. I'm Glenn Broggett along with my co-host, noted pro wrestling historian and author of some really great books on the American Wrestling Association, Mr. George Shire. And George, uh, we're back together again, which is nice, but it's to say goodbye to another great pro wrestling legend and one who definitely it was well known not only around the world but definitely up here in the great state of minnesota we're talking about uh the late great nick bockwinkle welcome back to the program george hey it's always great to be on board glenn and yeah you're right it's good to be back together we uh we don't do the show as often as we did in the past but now we kind of save it for special occasions Mm -hmm. and Obviously, someone passing away in the legendary status of uh, Nick Bockwinkle, I think that's a special occasion. So I'm glad we're doing it. Oh, I, as am I. I mean, when the news came uh, on, on social media is where I, I got the the information on Sunday through the Cauliflower Alley uh, page that uh, saw the passing uh, of, of Nick Bockwinkle. Uh, you know, a little, a little part of me that... First, that little AWA fan of me, a little piece of me kind of broke off with, with, with the death of Nick Bockwinkle, but definitely with you, George, who uh, saw Nick from, from, from jump from when he first came into uh, the Minneapolis territory. This has got to be especially hard for someone who has known Nick off and on for what it has, has it been now, 40-plus years? Yeah, it, it would be uh, 45, 45 years, yes, sir. Wow, it's uh, and it's amazing. Yes, we lost uh, Nick here on the the, the 14th of November. Uh, boy, it's it never gets easy, George. It really, really doesn't. And uh, last time I'll be one of the last times we got together, uh, we were uh, all looking back at the, the life of another pro wrestler who who had left us. There's been so many that have left us this year. The 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 ring in the sky is getting some some main event talent. When we were talking about Dusty Rhodes and yeah, boy. That one, you thought that one was hard. The Roddy Piper one was very difficult. But now with, with Nick Bockwinkle, it, it's almost, it's it's sort of reminiscent of how we felt and what we dealt with when when Nick passed away or, or when uh, Vern passed away earlier on this year. Right, and we talked about that too. And you know, Glenn, the thing is, uh, you're so right. It it never gets easy, but it's inevitable, especially with the old school generation, because, you know, in the four years that you and I have been doing the show off and on, um, yeah, we've said goodbye to some some really stellar stars. I mean, Mad Dog Vachon and Billy Robinson, mm-hmm. and you mentioned Vern and Dusty Rhodes, and, of course, Piper left us, and, and we had... Uh, uh, Doug Gilbert when he left, and I know we talked about Dutch Savage, and yeah. I mean, I, and I'm, I'm just rattling off some names, and I know we've left maybe a couple off right now, but it, it's always sad, you know, but you got to remember, these guys, they're all up there now, anywhere from 60 to plus whatever years, and in Nick's case, he was 80, uh, he would be turning 81 on December 6th, just oh. a couple weeks away. He'd have been 81. And I always remind folks that uh, December 6th was his birthday, and he was born in 1934. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the name Nicholas comes from the fact that he was born on St. Nicholas Day. That is December 6th every year for those holiday Christmas fans, St. Nicholas Day, and that's where the name Nicholas came from. His middle name, of course, Warren, after his dad. 
Mm-hmm. Now, uh, growing up uh, with a pro wrestling father, uh, you know, Nick must have really saw a lot of, of, of as much as he could of the business while also cultivating uh, his own athletic career, uh, you know, in, in, in high school in the collegiate ranks. So uh, Nick and pro wrestling, it, it was kind of uh, almost a birthright of sorts, but it was something that he definitely earned by watching some of his father's contemporaries. Oh, definitely. And, you know, in the years that I talked with Nick off and on when we'd have just one-on-one conversations, I know early on, you know, he shared with me that his parents, his dad and mom, had had divorced uh, somewhat early in, in Nick's life. And Nick said that, you know, he had the opportunity to stay with, uh, travel with his dad from time to time, you know, when he was a real young boy. And I mean, we're talking, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15 years old. He had a chance to travel with his dad. You know, we should tell our listeners that, you know, Warren Bachwinkle mm-hmm. was a, a really good, solid worker, wrestler in the 40s up to the mid-50s, and even the late 30s a little bit. But yeah. Warren Bachwinkle... Though he didn't attain the uh, the world championship type of stature that you know Nick did, Warren was of course in an era when there were less world titles and there were less uh, even. Let's be honest, there were less territories. Mm-hmm. And but he he definitely was one of those guys that everybody respected, and he had. He traveled a lot. We're talking Warren now. Mm-hmm. He traveled a lot in those days with guys like uh, Luthez and uh, Lord James Blears later on, a little bit later on, and stuff like that. And so with Nick, and, you know, he was Nicky in those days. Everybody called him Nicky. Young Nicky Bockwinkle. He was. Young Nicky Bockwinkle. And Nick told me one time that originally, you know, even though he had traveled with his dad, he said uh, his dad never actually ever smartened him up <laughs> as to how the business, the inner workings were. However, Nick says when you're around it like that and you're kind of living it and seeing it through your dad's eyes, he says you pick it up. You pick up a lot of things. Sort of like an osmosis sort of a thing through his father. Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy, Glenn. And the um, the thing with Nick is that he was around Luthez. And when it got time for Nick in his teenage years, you know, he had aspirations to be a football player, and he actually went to Oklahoma on a scholarship to play football. Yeah, what, 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 happened, happened, what happened with Nick there? I was just going to ask you about his, because uh, he was really good. I mean, to get to the University of Oklahoma on a scholarship, you're not exactly just uh, what they call a ham and egger. Well, definitely not. But, you know, we all know how, how tough a sport football is. Mm-hmm. And what happened with Nick is he had... Uh, I've heard the reports, report-wise that he, he uh, injured his knees and was unable to continue, but Nick told me one time that he actually broke his kneecap. Ouch. And it just basically halted his career, and he wasn't, uh, wasn't able to you know, continue with that. And so then it was a matter of when he was about 18, 19, and 20, uh, he started pushing his dad to... You know, I want to wrestle. I want to get into wrestling. Mm. And at that point, uh, Nick's first matches, his very first pro matches, were in 1954. So he would have been 20 years old or 19, depending on how it fell in the year. Barely out of his teens and uh, yep. into his early training, too. And right. 
Now, and, and what his dad did for him, uh, Glenn, is he hooked him up, of course, to have Luthez train him. Now, you, anybody that's followed old school wrestling, if you heard of Luthez, if you saw Luthez, you know that Luthez, he is the Bible. He is the yeah. god of, of wrestling from the 30s on up to the 60s. He really is a very res- always respected. You never hear anything bad about Luthez, and he was the consummate wrestler. He's the ultimate prototype for what you thought of a champion in those days and the way he conducted himself both in the ring and the professionalism that he had outside of the ring, uh, what, what a businessman that he was. It's just the way that he upheld the, the respect of the, of the world championship, just the way he conducted himself. Uh, Alou was always just uh, so, so top-notch and, and so for the business. Very much, and that's really a good way to describe him, Glenn. And, you know, Lou was one of those pioneers in that he always said the champion should be the one that's not a character. The champion mm-hmm. should be a real wrestler. The champion should, outside the ring, wear a suit and tie, which Lou always did. That was kind of an NWA standard, though. And let's just quickly say that when Nick Bockwinkle became champion, he followed through with that type of attitude. When you saw him outside the ring, he always had a nice sport coat on or a nice suit, tie, or open collar, but definitely a sport coat and nice slacks. You know, he was very much, I'm the champion, i got to look like it, and I'm not walking around in jeans and T-shirt and tennies. And then those trademark sunglasses, too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so when, when it got time for Nick to uh, get into the pro ranks, you know, he, he got a lot of early training from his dad. And you got to remember, by 1954, uh, Warren's career, as far as active career, was starting to wind down because he'd already been in the business for, you know, uh, 20 years, give or take. Yeah. And then you had Lou Thez. So Lou was one of, of Nick's primary trainers. And uh, Nick always told the story that when he was a just a young very young baby that Lou says was one of the guys that held Nick on his lap. And Nick says, I peed my pants on his lap. <laughs> so, I mean, how many people can say they wet their pants on the, on the lap of Lou says on the heavyweight champion of the world of the heavyweight champ of the world. But, uh, Nick had, you know, great training from Lou says. And then also he received a lot of his training from Wilbur Snyder and Wilbur had also received a lot of his ring training from Warren Bockwinkle earlier, and he had, of course, work from uh, Luthez in his early career. Wilbur was about 10 years older than Nick. I don't know if you've ever seen some young pictures of Wilbur Snyder when he had his crew cut and when back in the days when Nicky Bockwinkle had his crew cut. They, they literally could have passed for brothers. They looked a lot alike, stature-wise, facial-wise, they're, you know, everything. And um, How far in was Snyder uh, when, when he started working with Nick? You said there's a 10-year age difference. There's but... a 10-year age difference. So in, nine, in the 1950s, Wilbur, you know, being 10 years older, now if Nick was 80 right now, that means that Wilbur would have been 90 or 91, whatever, again, however the year falls. But um, when, when Nick started wrestling, you know, of course, Wilbur's already 30, let's mm-hmm. just say for math purposes. Mm-hmm. And Nick is 20. And then, you know, later on in their careers, they they, uh, did a lot of tag teaming together. 
in the late 50s and into the very early 60s, they were a solid babyface team in California and Indianapolis territories, and uh, they held titles together. So they were kind of your classic babyface tag team mm-hmm. in that era. And uh, But, you know, you talk about those three trainers, and Nick had the best training he could have gotten for his early career. Mm-hmm. So, so whereabouts did Nick start working as young Nicky Bockwinkle, and uh, and how long it really did it really take him to get the uh, the face? Because it mentioned in your book that he became Nick was billed as young Nicky Bockwinkle. He, he was a, a kind of a a lady's favorite, if you will, in those earlier days before he ended up putting on a mask. Well, that mask thing, we'll touch on that in a sure. second. But that young Nicky Bockwinkle thing, you know, if anybody that's seen the well, Nick period was a was a nice looking guy. Yeah. You know, he, he was a handsome dude. And but when he was younger, you know, he had that crew cut in the in the during the fifties and the early sixties, into the mid sixties actually. And, you know, he was he was definitely the good guy. When he came into the ring, you know, that he was the one the fans were gonna cheer against when, when Nick was in the ring against guys like Buddy Rogers and uh he wrestled Ray Stevens when Stevens was a heel out in California. And you had Nick wrestling Iron Mike DiBiase and and guys like that. Uh, so you know he was always the good guy. And they used to. There's actually a couple of programs that build him as young Nicky Bockwinkle, the ladies' favorite. But you know that that was in that era that with the baby faces. A lot of times they came up with these cliches. I remember Vern Gagne. He they called him a Bobby Soxer in the fifties. Oh, kind of like Frank Sinatra with yes. his Bobby Soxer. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, so that was that was kind of uh, typical. But you know, here's the thing, and and I think you and I, Glenn, we've talked about this over the years. You know, wrestling, as we know, is different today in in how the wrestlers are brought into the business, and then how they're given a push. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times today, it's the guy that has the best build, or he's just chiseled out, and he's six foot seven, and you know, 300 pounds, golden Adonis, and that sort of thing. Because Vince, M- Vince notoriously loves the big guys. Right. and that, But, I mean, that's what the fans have been trained on, and that's what they look at and perceive the, a wrestler to look like. But if you go back to the, uh, the 50s, the 60s, and in the 70s, you know, we, we, for the most part, I mean, we had guys that they were built better than you and me, but they were average looking guys they weren't monsters they didn't have the 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 bodybuilder build uh, with one you know with with one or two exceptions i mean fans that remember sailor art thomas mm-hmm. sailor art thomas in the in the late 50s and into the 60s i mean he had the muscles he oh, had cut. the body but it wasn't something that made him uh the must-see wrestler of the world. You know, he'd come into a territory and he'd have his run and he'd move on to the next territory. And and that's just, the, his his build wasn't the draw. It was, and you know, let's, in all fairness, Sailor Art Thomas was a very stiff worker, so mm-hmm. it was tough for a lot of opponents to, to work with him. But in the case of Bachwinkle, and like so many of his peers in that generation, you had to come into the business and because there were so many territories, and let's be honest, only so many spots for anybody to work in any territory, Nick was one of those guys that for the first 
10 years of his career, it wasn't up until the very early 60s that he was really starting to get into that main event form. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't even in the biggest promotions. Uh, One of the promotions that he had some uh, early success in in 1963, 64, he was in the uh, Pacific Northwest Territory. Now, I shouldn't say that's a small promotion by any stretch because that was one heck of a great territory. But, ge- but geographically, when you look at it, compared to maybe like the AWA that branched right. out into more states and areas, right. it was smaller in that stature. But Don Owen definitely had something good going on because you hear that reputation of Don Owen as a oh, good as a yeah. good pay guy and as a, a good place to go to work. Lots of guys. It's just an endless uh, uh, endless uh, stream of guys that have, have praised uh, working for the Owen, for Don Owen. Well, and you know, let's point out too that during... It was very typical for just about every wrestler, with but rare exception, during the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. It was very rare for a wrestler to come into the business and have an immediate push or within a year or two be main eventing and be the, be the star of a territory. It just, it, wasn't, um, it just wasn't that common. And most of those guys that came into the business during that time they were the journeymen. They were the guys that were, you know, Nick Bockwinkel, when he started, he was the guy that was the type of a wrestler that would put the hard-boiled Haggerty's over and the Vern Gagne's and the Gene Kadiskis and, and you name it, Pat O'Connor's and whoever it was. They were the guys that, they were working the undercard. Mm-hmm. And that was very typical in that era. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of guys pay, paying your dues and stuff. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Pacific Northwest. Uh, that was uh, where he won. His, is, that, is this true or is it the fact, George? That was where he won his first major singles title, defeating Tony Bourne? Uh, you know, that I don't have the actual title histories in front of me right now, but I think that sounds fairly right, Glenn. Uh, when he was in the Pacific Northwest, he had the uh, Pacific Coast Championship, the singles title, and he was also the... Uh, I think him and Mad Dog Vashon exchanged the title. Oh, talk about some great matches up there. Once or twice. And we have to remember that Mad Dog in that era, in 1963-64, we all, you and I have talked in the past how it was, speaking of Don Owen, that it was Don Owen that gave Mad Dog his name. He was Maurice Vashon, and he was kind of in one particular match as he was starting to work as a heel, and he um, he was kind of scratching his opponent's back, and he was kind of biting, you know, growling. And, and it was Don Owen who said, he's in the ring, and he's clawing and scratching like a mad dog in there. <laughs> hey, well, it, it, how appropriate, and, and, and yeah. it, it worked for him. You know, we talked about Pacific Northwest. But, well, Nick was kind of moving around before he really kind of found his uh, comfort zone in the AWA and the in the 1970, in the 60s, he was traveling all over trying to find a name, and for a while he didn't have his his name. He he went well, under some different aliases. George, we got to talk about these aliases, and uh, we were going to touch. We touched on it only briefly about you put that pretty face under a hood. Well, here here, let me give you kind of the synopsis here. All right. Um, first of all, when you talk about how he's traveled around, you know, we should point out that during the uh, late 50s and into the early 60s. By this time, Nick Bockwinkle, though he wasn't, you know, your typical main event wrestler, he was a wrestler that could virtually, at that point in time, go to any territory, and the promoter wanted him on the card. Mm-hmm. And he, he had trips to Australia. He had a great run 
in Australia in the mid-60s, 65, 6, Was Barnett still running it out there? Uh, yes, yes. And Nicky was down there, and, you know, he, he had a chance to work in Australia, and then he, uh, you know, I've got matches where he was teamed with guys like Bill Dromo, and, and uh, I know he worked with Mark Lewin down in Australia, and, and uh, off the top of my head, I know those are three of them. But, you know, he also had had made some trips to Japan. He was he was definitely wrestling up in Canada. He'd been in Texas, made several runs through Texas. That's back, you know, before uh, Fritz von Erich took it over. Now, now, was he working Amarillo as well as down by Dallas? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he was in Amarillo, and, you know, that was where the funks were. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so what you got here is you had a guy and i mean this to me is what really puts a, puts nick bockwinkel so so high above maybe a lot of others and any guy you and i have talked about over the recent years you know on passing we've talked about legend after legend mm-hmm. but in the case of bockwinkel you know he like so many he had that opportunity to travel around all these territories and that was where these guys really got their education. Because when you went into a territory, you had so many different wrestlers and different styles and the different way of promoting and the different audiences. You know, depending on where you were, you had different biases from the crowd and, oh, sure. and things like that. And so when, when these wrestlers could go in and pick up all that, you know, work with these different guys, mm-hmm. um, it was only natural that you're going to take certain things from them and put it into your package. And, and you're also going to wrestle somebody and say, well, boy, that, that doesn't work for me, or mm-hmm. that can't work for me. And mm-hmm. so Nick was very adept at doing that. And when you want to go to that mask thing, he was in Omaha in uh, the late 50s. And this was now before, this was 58, 59. This was before uh, the AWA was conceived out of the Minneapolis office. Okay. And Dr. Bill Miller was there under a mask as Dr. X. Not to be confused with the AWA Dr. X or the Oklahoma Mid-South Dr. X later on. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Bill Miller was wrestling as Dr. X. And... He was having a feud. With, they brought Nick Bockwinkel in, and it was one of those things where you kind of bring a guy in and you put him under a mask, and he beats he beats Doctor X. And he was wrestling as the Phantom, a white mask, but it was very short lived. But he had a nice program against uh, Bill Miller, and that was really one of his his launching pads, even as early as '60. And then you know he went on to that. Pacific Northwest thing that we spoke about, and he was in Texas after that. You know, he also had that other run. I mean, there was uh, a couple of other names. I'm going to back way up for a second. Mm -hmm. When Nick first started wrestling in 54 and 55, he was in the uh, Army. And when he'd be stationed, he used to be, he was stationed, I know, for a while at Fort Ord. Now, I have to tell you geographically, I'm not sure where Fort Ord is. I think it's I don't even want to guess because I'm going to be wrong, and somebody's going to say, "Well, the authority doesn't know." <laughs> but uh, Fort Ord, a, a former army base on Monterey Bay of the Pacific Ocean. Coast. Yeah, there you go. 
but he he did he was in the army and one of the things that the army didn't want their guys to do is to uh wrestle when they were off base when they were on their furlough or whatever they were doing well nick kind of broke the rules on that and he would go off base and he would when a, when they were in a town that he uh would find out there's a wrestling card and he would wrestle well in those days and he actually held the San Francisco version of the World Tag Team Championship with Ramon Torres, and he was um, wrestling as Dick Warren. Dick <laughs> Warren, using his dad's last name or or first, first name. name, yeah. And but why Dick? But I have seen some results, and you know, again, you got to always worry about typos and that sort of thing. But I have some seen where it said Nick Warren as well. Mm-hmm. But it was Dick Warren, and then he'd go back to the Army base, and nobody was the wiser. And Nick actually told me a story one time. Uh, he said that one time one of the Army buddies said that the guy in the in the picture in the paper looked a lot like Nick, <laughs> that one of the wrestlers, and it was this Dick Warren. So, Oh, uh, it's a coincidence. Yeah. yeah, just a coincidence. But then, you know, later on in his career, he had a brief stint where he worked as um, uh as Roy Diamond, and and this comes across as one of the funniest stories. I, I tell you this, yeah. And I want to stop right there. And now you re- remember what I'm going to tell you when I say favorite stories, because in case I have one of my senior moments. Sure, sure. I'll let you go. But every all of us remember Nick Bockwinkle on the interviews, all the big hundred dollar words he would toss out, and how arrogant he was, and condescending he was, and that was his character as a heel. And, of course, when you get him outside the ring and you're just one-on-one or if he knows you and you're in the group, um, I mean, man, this wasn't even close to the character of the Bachwinkle that you saw in the ring or on that camera doing the interview. Mm-hmm. So Nick Bachwinkle says to me one time that he was going in to work into Buffalo, and it was promoted at the time by Pedro Martinez, a promoter named Pedro Martinez. Yep. And... They they had called for Nick Bockwinkle to come in, and when Nick got there, uh, Martinez said, "We don't want to use you as Nicky Bockwinkle. We well, we want to change your name, and you know we're going to call you Roy Diamond. Is that okay?" And Nick, this is the funny part that I and I'm going to quote it exactly the way he said it to me. He said, "I told Martinez, I don't care if you bill me as asshole, as long as you pay me." long as the check clears. And so the funny thing is, is that then Nick proceeded to tell me the story about in those days, in that era, when they had all these territories and they would travel and work for different promoters. And sometimes, you know, Glenn, they'd go into a territory and, and maybe they were passing through it. It was just a month and they'd do two or three cards and they'd be gone. Mm-hmm. Other times they'd be in the territory for six, eight months. You know, sometimes it'd be a year. It, var- it, it varied in how, what their shots were. Exactly. And so in the case of this uh, Martinez situation, they, they actually billed him as Roy Diamond. Well, he only worked for this promoter for four matches because, and, he, and billed in every one of them as Roy Diamond. And what it was at the time, it was, it was a takeoff on the television show uh, Peter Gunn at the time, because if anybody, the old TV fans, remember the show Peter Gunn starring Craig Stevens, his name was Diamond in the, in the movie. 
or in the in the shoal, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, or I'm you know actually I'm I'm mixing that up. Backup Shire, it was uh, it was uh, oh boy, Craig Stevens was Peter Gunn, but there was a Richard Diamond, Private Eye. There you go. Richard Diamond. See, once in a while, I have to take the eraser out, Glenn. Hey, everybody. We're not perfect, but, <laughs> but you know, that it's an interesting how they found that. I guess that does kind of work when you put a name that's kind of similar to a leading man character with Nick. Right. You know, well, and, anyway, so the long story short on the thing is that Nick worked for him for only four matches, uh-huh. and he wasn't he, he didn't get the promise kept to him on his payoffs, and Nick told the promoter, you know, to have a nice life, I'm out of here. And he went to look for work elsewhere. So if anybody, you know, looks at the results, I mean, I have them all, but four di- four matches, Roy Diamond, and that's what he was. Roy Diamond. Now, uh, we talked about uh, his early, early days. Let's kind of start making uh, our way up, up to Minneapolis. But before we get to Minneapolis, uh, Nick ended up uh, working in the Georgia Territory, and even around that time he worked uh, – some championship matches with Dory Funk Jr., a guy he probably picked up a couple of uh, things or twos uh, when he was working in Amarillo. Let's talk oh, about that, that. Let's talk about some of the time that he spent in Atlanta that ended up with him with a, with a championship with a, a, a title run down there. That's what I was trying to say. Right. Well, he was he was in Hawaii before he went to Atlanta, uh-huh. and he was in California. And he in the Hawaii, he was the state champion. A uh, couple times. Who did he work with and, out there in Hawaii, though? Who were some of his main, main oh, uh, matches? Oh, he was in with Haggerty. He was in with King Curtis Ikea. Uh, Ed Francis was there. Uh, Pampero Furpo. Um, boy, I'm coming off the top of my head here. Uh, so, uh, it, so it's all guys that would pretty much come along the trail again with Nick when Nick moved uh, and kind of set up base camp in the, in the AWA. Yes. Well, and you know, that was the thing, too, you know, Glenn. A lot of times these guys, you know, they'd go to a territory and they'd run into one or two guys that they'd been to in a previous territory at some point in time during their travels. And, of course, then they renew old friendships. You know, sometimes they were closer than others. And when their travels took them in different directions, they would, you know, obviously lose track of one another for maybe a year or two or three. But then they would reconnect. You know, three guys, and while we're talking about that reconnect, Three guys that literally their careers continued to interact were Red Bastine, Ray Stevens, and Nick Bockwinkle. And throughout their careers, they were outside the ring, three of the best friends. And they always loved to get together, and they, they really enjoyed life together. But they always were not in the same territories. So now going back to your, your thing about uh, Nicholas, he went into Atlanta in uh, 1969, and he really wanted to test the waters as a heel. He had always been a babyface. He had never been booed. I mean, he just was, you know, the clean cut, as the term I always use, you know, mom's apple pie, good guy. Yeah. And he wanted to kind of test the waters. So there was where he started adopting that, that uh, arrogant style. The thing that Nick wanted to do, though, when when he come up with this let's be a heel thing, is he wanted to be the, a different kind of a heel than so many of his uh, fellow wrestlers had perceived a heel to be. You know, a lot of the heels were the, the hairy, grumpy, 
growling, spitting, gnarling, biting, kicking, you know, yelling and screaming in the microphone. Yeah, just stomping around, just trying to create their presence. Uh, but, yes. But with Nikki, this was a whole different deal. This was a, a, a the prototype of a different type of heel, and this was the that smooth talking, but still doesn't have to raise his voice using those $100, million-dollar words. Well, and, you know, the story goes, too, that he actually... And when he got to the AWA, he started carrying a dictionary, a small dictionary around with him. And what he would do is he'd look up a couple of words, and at some point he'd try to get them out into an interview just to confuse people. (laughs) And that, you know, during that year or a little over a year in Atlanta, he also had the chance to work again with some talent that is phenomenal. He had a chance to work against the Assassins, Jody Hamilton, Joe Hamilton, and uh, uh, Tom Ernesto. Mm-hmm. He had a chance to work with Doug Gilbert, who was the professional there with a, under a mask. He had the chance to work with uh, uh, Paul DeMarco and Buddy Colt, who some fans knew earlier in AWA territories as Ron Reed. But, you know, you talk about just those guys alone, and he had a chance to work with the Torres brothers. And you talk about that type of talent, how can you not also pick some stuff up? Him and him and Paul DeMarco actually did a, a little bit of tag teaming together. Joe Scarpa was there before he went out East to Jeep, become man. Chief J. Strongbow. And, you know, Joe Scarpa, a lot of people, you know, they, they think of him as, as J. Strongbow. I will tell you personally that, and again, it, you can take it as my opinion for what it's worth, but Joe Scarpa was a hell of a better wrestler than what Jay Strongbow was. And yes, they were the same guy, but they were doing a different thing. When he became Strongbow, he had a, he was obviously a little up in the years, mm. and he, um, he he was not doing he was not working as hard. It was that less is the less is more thing applied right. definitely for him. Right, and he got over on the Indian gimmick that he was using, and he was always the second banana to get to San Martino in those days when he first went there. The, the, so, the, symp- back, the sympathetic face who usually ended up uh, being the fall guy, like you said, for San Martino. You got it, exactly. But, I mean, these are some of the guys that Nick, and then you mentioned Dory Funk Jr., and he did have a couple of matches with Dory. You know, Dory won the NWA title in February of 1969, and so he did go into Atlanta and defend his title, and he had a chance to wrestle uh, against Nick. And, I mean, they respected each other. They had been together in the Amarillo Territory, and Terry Funk and Nick Bockwinkle were always friends. Mm. They have been friends for years and years and years. So Nick really, and Paul DeMarco at that point, I want to back up a second because I had mentioned they had teamed together. Paul DeMarco was a um, the arrogant type of a, a character at that point in time. He was calling himself, he insisted on being called Mr. Paul DeMarco. <laughs> and, you know, don't call me Paul DeMarco, you call me Mr. Paul DeMarco. Well, right away, you know, you hate the guy. And his, his gimmick worked. So Nick got a, had a chance to kind of pick a little bit up from Paul DeMarco as well. And... That year in Atlanta, he was the Atlanta. He was the uh, Georgia State champion. He was the Georgia Television champion, and he also co-held the uh, Georgia title very briefly. Well, then he had been courted, actually, for about a year to come into the AWA 
Vern had contacted him and wanted him to come in. And it was always a matter of, you know, a lot of times when these guys were contacted by promoters to come into a territory, sometimes they couldn't because they were in the middle of a program or doing something in a territory where they were doing well at this point, at a certain point, and maybe making the money they were happy with. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it was always, well, as soon as my run here is over, I'll, you know, I'll give you a call. And a lot of times for promoters, that was okay. So he came in to the AWA, and I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this, but, you know, I remember the night on All-Star Wrestling when Nick Bockwinkle made his AWA debut on TV. He had actually wrestled his very first match on December 11th, 1970, in Denver. That was his first AWA match. Mm -hmm. He wrestled... And um, he wrestled to a draw, okay, ironically, he wrestled to a draw with Wilbur Snyder, his old California tag team partner and one of his trainers. Mm, And all this connects. And Wilbur Wilbur, uh, and him put on a draw in Denver that night. But the next night, which would have been the 12th on All-Star Wrestling, Nick Bockwinkle has a TV match. And you know, in those days, they had the, the TV guy or the squash matches with a jobber or something. Well, Nick you know, beat his opponent, and he came out on the interview area, and Marty O'Neill in those days, he said, we want to welcome new to the AWA, a, uh, a young wrestler by the name of Nick Bockwinkle, second generation, and he asked him, he said, Nick, tell the fans a little bit about yourself. Well, Nick, he, you know, I can't, I can't say it verbatim, but, you know, kind of paraphrasing it, mm-hmm. he told Marty, he said, Marty, I've been wrestling for uh, quite a few years now, um, I've been you know, the state champion in Hawaii, and I've been champion in California, and I've been traveling all over the country, and I just got out of a successful run where I was in Atlanta. I was the Georgia champion. He kind of goes through a little bit of real quick, you know, and he says... A little, a little front sell. Yeah. And then he says to Marty, he says, and the one guy I've been chasing is Vern Gagne. And every time I'm in a territory, Vern Gagne disappears. And he says, well... Now I'm in Minneapolis, Vern Gagne's backyard, his hometown. And he said, Marty, I want the world championship. I'm going to beat Vern Gagne. And he said, and this was where it really hit home on that very first interview, because what I just said pretty much summed up his two minutes on the air or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And then he looked at the camera and he looked at Marty and he said, Marty, in Hawaii, where I was the state champion, when someone is leaving, we say aloha. (laughs) And he looked right at the camera, and he says, aloha, Vern Gagne, and he walked off off camera. That's the way you make a television debut and an impact on the all-star wrestling. That is. So he basically, on that initial interview, and I remember, I watched it, and I remember I I was watching it in in, in my bedroom, and I, you know, I was a young kid. I was watching it in my bedroom, and I jumped off my bed watching it, and I ran out, and I told my dad, I said, Dad, oh, my gosh, I can't wait till we get to the matches tonight because they just saw the coolest guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the story. And from the onset, going back into the inside a little bit, Vern Gagne and Wally Carbo, basically, the initial plan was to bring Nick in and at some point, Vern wanted to uh, 
put the championship on him. He was the guy that Vern trusted. He was the guy that Vern knew could wrestle and represent wrestling. You know, Vern Gagne, you had to be a wrestler first, and then we'll talk about you being a character mm-hmm. or, or a gimmick if you need it. But Vern wanted that wrestling first. Well, you know, you watch Nick in the times that you saw him. This guy, he could put on a clinic. It's, and of course, and, and, and the cardio, and the cardio too. For I mean, yeah. I got to see Nick towards the end when he's in his fifties, and even into his forties, I've seen some of his stuff. He had he had that that great cardio where he could put a 45, 60 minute Broadway on. Well, exactly. When you talk about being in his fifties, we all remember that that one of those last matches that he had near eighty nineteen eighty seven when he was wrestling Kurt Hennig, and Kurt Hennig at the time, you know, Nick was fifty three or whatever he was. And here's Kurt Hennig, who is 25 years younger. And oh, yeah. Fresh they went, they went to our Broadways. And you can, anybody listening to our show today, you can go out on YouTube, just plug in Nick Bockwinkel versus Kurt Hennig. And those Broadways are out there. And I got news for you. Those two guys, and of course, let's not discount the fact that Kurt came from good genes and had good trainers with and Gagne and Billy Robinson and stuff too, and then working with guys like Nick and all that. But yeah, they put on a clinic. But that's what Nick did, and so he was he was the chosen one to become the uh, eventual AWA champion. Now Vern Gagne, at that point, was coming off of uh, was he won the championship uh, in '68. Well, he had actually held it a little bit longer than that, but he had a two week period where he lost it to Dr. X in 1968, and then he won it back. So from 68 and August of 68 until November of 75, he had a seven-year run. And he was, you know, Vern was at that point, it was time to slow down himself, and he wanted to take care of business in the office. And Nick finally got the call. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, before then too. I, I, you know, reading your book is so is so great. Uh, and I'm going to have to put a plug in, George. Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling. Uh, in the book, I've been reading just to brush up a little bit on on some of the earlier Nick stuff. Uh, you know, when he came in, you know, sometimes you know now in, in more it's more so in the modern days of wrestling when they bring a star in, they'll hot shot him, give him a quick title belt like that. It seemed like they were grooming Nick even earlier on because from what I've been reading, when Nick first came into the territory, he was picking up some early victories, but he was also in contention with another guy who sadly left us due to that unfortunate automobile accident. He was kind of going neck and neck with Hercules Cortez kind of in that championship race for for Vern's belt. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you the story behind the story here. Um, And you're right. Hercules Cortez had come back to the AWA in 1971, and he had been gone since 1963. So Cortez had traveled to a lot of, he wrestled a lot in Spain, and he had wrestled in other, you know, up in Canada and different places, and he finally came back to the AWA. Well, in the case of Nick, um, Vern had originally, this is telling you how fate can change plans. The... um, the, the initial plan was to put the title on Nick earlier. Mm-hmm. But what had happened was is when the Vashon brothers told Vern that they wanted to drop the tag titles in, in 1971 because Butcher was going up to, the, uh, to Montreal to co-promote the Grand Prix promotion, and Mad Dog was going to go with him, 
And you know that if anybody follows the Grand Prix, uh, Grand Prix promotion for a number of years in that early 70s period, you know they had the Vachans and Edouard Carpentier and Goulet and Doug Gilbert and the the Hollywood Blondes, uh, Buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown and Sir Oliver Humperdinck as their manager and Andre the Giant. That's when he started to come on. Gene Farid, the Rougeau yeah. brothers. I mean, there were all kinds of great talent up there that worked. But anyway, the Vachans had decided that they were going to drop. The, they wanted to drop their title. So Vern, he came up with the plan that he wanted to put. He, he said, "I'll put the title on Red Bastine because Bastine had been working back home here now for a couple of years and had some good tag team runs with Billy Red Lions and Red and uh, Pepper Gomez, uh, both of which had left the territory." And Vern decided he was going to put it on. Uh, Bastine and Hercules Cortez. And the initial plan was like most of the times with the AWA tag team title was that at least they would hold the title for a year or two, depending on how long. But generally speaking, it was always a year or two, couple years, two and a half years, whatever it was for the tag champs. So that fateful night of uh, July 20, well, the morning of the night of 23rd of July of 71 and then into the morning of July 24th, that was when Hercules and uh, Bach, uh, Red Bastine were in that car accident coming back from Winnipeg, mm-hmm. and Cortez was killed. Well, that night on the 24th, they were scheduled, Cortez and Bachwinkle were scheduled in a uh, what they billed as a battle of the unbeatens, and the winner was to get a shot at Vern Gagne. And that was where the plan was, is that Nick was going to get the title shot and likely would have gotten the championship mm-hmm. relatively short period of time thereafter, maybe early 72 or something. Yeah. But once Cortez died, they had to do something different quickly with the tag team title. And in order to keep the fans interested and put in the best drawing partner they could for Bastine, they got the crusher to take the title. Now, what a lot of fans need to know here, and I think, Glenn, you and I have talked about this in the past, the crusher wasn't always excited about taking the tag team championship. He didn't. He, he did it usually as a favor to Vern for short-term periods. And so in this instance, he told Vern, yeah, I'll I'll go along with it, but I don't want this to go on forever. And by this time, Bastine, he had really, uh, in private conversations that I had with him later on, years later, he told me that that accident that they were in and, and Hercules was killed, and he says it just it really did play a havoc with me. He says it, I didn't enjoy traveling in cars that much anymore. and it, it Yeah, they have some, wanted, some sort of post-traumatic stress from yeah. that, yeah. And he wanted to return to Texas because he had had a home down there. He was from Minnesota, Minneapolis, but he wanted to return to Texas. So he basically, after they put the title on him and the Crusher, and Crusher said, I don't want this to be forever, so figure something out, basically. And Bastine then wanting to leave, Vern kind of derailed his plan to put the singles title on Nick, and he had a ready-made team with Stevens and Bachwinkle. And therein, how in, in January of 72, uh, Stevens and Bachwinkle became the AWA tag champs. 
Now, you've got them as champs, and I can tell you, they were a hot tag team. I mean, they were, they inside the ring, you had two complete opposites is how their styles were, mm-hmm. but they meshed, and they, they were... They, they, they were as hated by the fans as you can get. And, and then what you do is you're drawing well with them. So, you know, Vern's not going to upset that apple cart, which I'm going to back the, the horse up here a second and tell you, you know, when the Vashans were champions, they were champions from August of 69 until May of 71. There is no doubt in anybody's mind that if the Vashans had wanted to not be champions for a while, Vern could have went with Billy Red Lions and Red Bastine. Mm-hmm. They would have been the most logical choice. But it wasn't going to happen. It's one of those cases of they were in the wrong place at the right time. The timing issues, of course. So there's how it happened with Nick. And then Vern is drawing well with Nick and Ray for, you know, from 72, well, or late 71, uh, 72, 73, 74, he's drawing so well with them as his tag champs. And then Vern wasn't wrestling as frequently as he had had done in the past. He held the title, and, you know, he'd wrestle uh, once a month or once or twice a month at most, you know. And so he had slowed down, and it, they were focusing on the tag team division at that point. But by the time we get to 1975, that was when... It was time, and Ray Stevens had left for a little bit. They, he wanted to leave, and, and so they put the title on the Crusher and the Bruiser, which, again, was an interim thing because Crusher wanted to be, you know, Bruiser came in as a favor because he had his own territory in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And Crusher, you know, it's like, okay, I'll do it, but we're not going to, let's not take it forever here. And so they held the title until uh, uh, 76 when Duncan and Lanza took it from him. Mm-hmm. And then so for, that's kind of how that stuff works. Yeah, and, and you know, and it was you know, it, I guess they made the most of a good like a good audible, a twist where you know it could have been Bachwinkle earlier on, but then if we did Bachwinkle earlier on, we would have been able to experience the great years and just that solid tag team division with him and Stevens running running roughshod. Well, and you and then when you look at you know, as I said, Vern was definitely wrestling a lot less, but to still emphasize the world champion, you still had your challengers that were fighting for a spot, you know, that sort of thing. You had Billy Robinson and Nick Bockwinkle in such great singles matches. You had Bockwinkle feuding with the Crusher. Because, you know, the Crusher then, he would come up with different tag team partners to go against Stevenson Bockwinkle after Bastine had left. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he te- Crusher teamed up with uh, Billy Robinson. He teamed up with... Uh, uh, Wahoo McDaniel, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. And then you had Billy Robinson who could who could wrestle Nick and Ray and have uh, so many different partners. We had Billy and Jeff Ports and Billy and Wahoo McDaniel and Billy and Cowboy Bill Watts. And then Red Bastine came home for a little bit in 73, home meaning Minneapolis. So many talented moving parts within the company at this time that there were the scenarios for all these great matches and feuds were there. Exactly. So now, let's talk about the fact that so now you've got Nick Bockwinkle, and he is, by all practical purposes, the best technical wrestler aside of Billy Robinson and maybe Vern himself, definitely. you got the best wrestler holding your championship. You're drawing good money with him when he gets the title in 75. 
And, you know, he held the championship for five years, just a, just a little bit short of five years. And he wrestled all over the AWA. He was, he was in a good territory. He actually was courted uh, about 1977 or so to come into the NWA and win and take their title. Fritz von Erich wanted to put it on him, along with Sam Muchnick agreeing. And Nick didn't want it because he did the math. He figured out he'd be working 365, 370 days a year because sometimes there'd be double dates in there, you know, two times a day. And he, he would have no time off. He'd be all over the world. Whereas if he was AWA champ, he could be closer to home. It wasn't as hard with the travel. And he only wrestled about uh, uh, two weeks out of the month. And you would have to think that uh, guys like Harley and Briscoe were probably telling him about how, how many of these uh, shots they had to take representing the NWA and all the road miles that they had to put on and some of the houses that weren't exactly the biggest houses next to the bigger houses. And it was just a, a real... I guess more of a laborious thing, whereas you know the Vern's Vern's territory was like a perfect fit for Nick. He had less schedule, less dates, but making good money and still having that great TV presence. Well, and I'll tell you about that good money. Uh, Nick and I were talking about this one time. He, in fact, he was at my house. We were sitting out on the deck, and he was telling me this scenario about when he was offered the NWA title. And he says, you know, I, I sat down and I did the paperwork. I figured out what Harley was making, figured out what I was going to make. And he said, Harley was working all those dates year-round and definitely having a, the, the harder schedule. And Nick says, I did all the math and worked it out, and I realized that I was actually making more than Harley after expenses and the whole thing and working as Nick said, I was working about six months out of the year after your time's off during the week and things like that. Plus, he, as you say, he was closer to home. He lived in Minneapolis at that point. And he had a young family at that time, too, a couple of kids. Yep. Well, he had gotten married. Uh, he, he had gotten divorced early in his career. And um, as best I can tell, his, his daughter stayed with his former wife. But when him and Darlene, his wife, got married in 72, they never had any children of their own, although Darlene had some children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Nick just basically worked out the best deal for Nick Bockwinkle. But, you know, you talk about a guy, and, and Nick was trusted. That was the key thing. And Vern knew that on any given time, if he had wanted to, A, take the title back from Nick or ask Nick to drop it to somebody else, Nick was the Nick was the employee company man. He had no issues. His ego that way wasn't where, oh no, you're not going to do that. <laughs> and you know, just as a side reference, you flash ahead to 1986 when we had Stan Hansen do that uh, with the AWA title. You know, he took it more seriously that no, you're not taking it from me, and I'm not dropping it. Mm -hmm. And that's where you got the employee telling the, the, the boss it doesn't work that way in any business. Mm -hmm. Now, that was so, more of a controversial way of getting the AWA title handed to him. But uh, back in 19, was it 1981 when Vern had his final uh, match with, with Nick for the title? Now, he won the title back from Nick, but instead of, uh, you know, some routes, some territories have did the tournament route. Uh, it was what Vern decided to give the belt back to Nick because he was the number one contender. So Nick has been no stranger to those scenarios, but that doesn't take away or diminish any of his great uh, wrestling skills or his career. 
Well, you know, I think in hindsight, Glenn, a lot of times the fans today, even the old school fans and, you know, definitely the newer ones that didn't understand how the business worked, um, you know, in, in that time frame, you've got to remember, first of all, Vern retired. He, he took the title back for the last year of his active career. And he was the owner. He was the boss. He was Vern Gagne, and he could still put butts in the seats even at age 55 or whatever he was at the time. I guess he would have been about 55 or close to it in mm-hmm. 81. So, you know, Vern, people say, well, he put the title on himself because he wanted to, you know, retire, to put himself over. Well, of course. Oh, yeah. It's his company. He can do what he wants. The only time I would ever have, a, have an, a, an exception to what he did was that if he would have done it and he was not the exceptional draw, the exceptional wrestler that he had always been and, and had the career that he did, then I would have said, you know what, this is the stupidest thing you've ever done because you're just putting your ego over. But Vern had the, the credentials to, to put that the belt, the belt on. And that was now, such a great did, rivalry between the two because even when Nick won the title from Vern right away, he made Vern kind of wait for it uh, as the story would follow until Vern eventually got it back in, what, 79, 80? He took it back in, in, in the summer of, 80. summer of 80. Well, you know, let me point this out, too. Um, that last match, and we know that Vern had a couple of coming out of retirement matches later oh, on. Of course. Those, again, were for promotional purposes for a program against... Uh, the Sheik and Blackwell and stuff like that. Special and they attraction. drew money. They drew money, and that, that's the name of the game. But in the case of Vern retiring, um, I was sitting ringside at that May 10th, 1981 match at the St. Paul Civic Center, and I am telling you, Vern was 55. Uh, Nick would have been what? He was. He's up, upper 40s when. Yeah, definitely. Closer to 50, yeah, because he, what, what, he la- his last championship was about, what, around 50, he was 54? Yeah. So, yeah, he's close to up, close to 50 at least. But anyway, they definitely, that last match, it really was, if I wanted to rank really great matches I saw through the years, I would put that one in my list. Even though I had seen the two wrestle many times over the course of the last 17 years before that, they uh, this match was really done well. The deal was, Vern asked Nick, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to go out as champion. When we're done, I'm going to put the belt on you. Okay, it was, it was a behind-the-scenes deal. I want you to stay with me. You're the, you're the champ. I'm gonna, we're going to put it back on you. Now, from an outsider point, people say, well, you know, they should have had a tournament and they should have done this and they should have done that. Drawn it out for a while. Yeah, you know, maybe in that instance they could have had an elimination match between him and Robinson or uh, him and Martell or whoever whoever was around. I mean, they could have maybe two matches to build it up, you know. Yeah, they could have. But at this point, that takes time. And you've got dates set up in all these cities. By that time, you got to remember in 81, the AWA, 81 and 82 were the AWA's most successful and most financially successful years. Mm-hmm. But then it was that way, with, a, with an asterisk here I say this, it was that way all over wrestling as a whole, because that just was a booming couple, three years. So, But Vern, that was a good time. So you put the title on Nick, and then you go forward. Yeah, and and Nick was your best representative. 
And, and what they did, too, when they put the belt on Nick was kind of an interesting way of doing it. Instead of just getting back to healing as usual, that set up a really good, intriguing program with a fellow heel, the, the whole Adnan L. Casey buildup. You know, and, and I have always sat back and I have said that that, to me, was one of the most genius moves. If I, Behind the scenes, if I'm the promoter, I applaud Vernon and Wally, if, if Wally, and I'm guessing Wally at that point was involved in it. I applaud them for coming up with that storyline and that angle because what they did is literally fans were upset that Nick, because they said he had it handed to him. He didn't have to work for it. He got it handed to him. Mm -hmm. And what Vern did was he had during the summer of 81, all over the AWA, I think just about every major AWA city had a a four-match program where he ended up wrestling against Sheik Adnan Al Casey. Now, you got to remember, the fans are upset that Nick is champion. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden, here comes the challenger from Baghdad, Iraq, you know, his gimmick. And by the way, he really was from Iraq. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Legit thing. Absolutely. But legit. He, was, he was this rich, chic oil baron. He was always putting down America. He was going to take the title, and he was going to go to Iraq, and he was never going to come back here. And, and, so, and, and Sheik was very over. So they put him in against Nick. Well, then, and I sat through the the matches between those two in the Twin Cities here. And I will tell you, they never turned Nick babyface, but Nick was the crowd favorite for those matches, and they were chanting, America, America, or USA, USA. That was genius because the fans wanted Nick to beat the Sheik. Mm -hmm. And what you do is by the time the Sheik battles are done with, the fans... Because, and I say this with no disrespect to the fans, but a lot of fans didn't always have the, the long-term memories. They, they didn't pay attention to what happened a year ago or six months ago. They were in the present, and they, they had forgotten how Nick got the title. <laughs> so by the time those matches were done, it's a, it was a perfect go. it was a perfect smokescreen to get him uh, focused on the something else. I got to mention too. I mean, uh, this has been talked about by many pro wrestling fans of the older school of AWA, and a lot of people when they think when they talk about this guy and his brief run as champion, they it's not doesn't exactly get the greatest results and the fun, the, the funnest of uh, memories. We're talking about when 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 Nick had to drop the title to Otto Vance. You know that Otto Vance thing. I will tell you that I think I'm with everybody else. There were very, very few times when I was dumbfounded by something our local promotion did or something I'd heard from another promotion during that that time frame. But the Otto Vance thing seemed to come right out of nowhere. But really what it amounted to, and this is the the behind-the-scenes story, Vern was drawing well with Nick, of course. Otto Vance, um, Vern had went over to Austria and wrestled, wrestled the tour over there. Larry Hennig was over there, and they, you know, Otto Vance was a big wrestler in his country. He didn't do a lot of American wrestling. No, because he, he really did the, the wrestling and he did the promoting with his company, too. Right, and he promoted his own company. Well, what had happened was, is when Vern and Horst Hoffman was over there and, you know, different guys, well... 
Vance was the one that approached Vern and said, can we work out a deal where I can take the championship, I can come to the USA, take the championship, we'll work a couple of months, I'll drop it back to Nick, and I'll come home when he comes back to his native land, and he's now he's announced over there as being the world champion for a while, and when he comes back, he's heralded as the man who beat Nick Bockwinkle and the man who won the world title. All and it was hero. all for his own. At this point, there's your ego. He wanted to put Otto Vance over, and so that's the way he did it. And he, he paid Vern. Now, it doesn't seem like a lot of money in today's dollars, even though I think it was a lot of money then, and I still do today. But he paid Vern $50,000. Oh, you adjust that for today? That's still a lot of scratch. Well, I understand that. But in 1981, Otto Vance paid Vern $50,000. I'm going to take your title. I'm going to take the title from Nick in August, and I'll drop it back to him in October. This was a behind-the-scenes, completely worked-out deal. Nick had had a couple of matches. I think, you know, if I looked at my results again, Nick had several rematches around the AWA. He did have one in Minneapolis or St. Paul. And, you know, each time Otto beat him. But when it got to that October date, then Otto dropped the title back to Nick. And Otto basically left. You know, he was, he he had done what he wanted to do and Vern was at $50,000. A footnote to history and a $50,000 payment. Was was there some sort of similar arrangement with with the the Tommy Sharuda, Jumbo Sharuda title change? The Sharuda thing... There wasn't any, at least I have never heard of any financial exchange, but that was worked out with Giant Baba. Okay. Uh, Vern had always had a a fairly decent working relationship with Baba through the years because, as you know, um, a lot of times the the American wrestlers would go over on these six, eight-week tours to Japan and work in the tournaments over there. And, of course, all of the American guys, went, or the American wrestlers, when they went to Japan, the Americans were always the, the basically the heels against the Japanese wrestlers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I, I just want to do as a side note, we used to see some really cool tag team matches over there when you'd see something like... Uh, uh, well, you'd see a Harley race teamed up with Pat O'Connor or, or teamed up with Vern Gagne or something for a match. You mm-hmm. know? And that was, fun. And Japan was one of the few places where Hulk Hogan did more than three moves. Yes. Yes. Which tells you that, you know, it's all based on what you're, what you want to do, I guess. But the deal with, with Saruta was Saruta was probably from a Japanese wrestler standpoint. And, you know, they did emphasize a lot more on wrestling in Japan. They weren't as much into the characters as, you know, we were with the superstar Grams and the, the, you know, bleach blondes and whatever. A lot of the Japanese wrestlers were very sound and fundamental uh, wrestlers. Mm-hmm. So uh, Tommy Sharuda, Jumbo Sharuda, he had been, he'd come in for Vern a few times since about 78. He had come in and made some appearances along with Baba and uh, Teneru, Giant Teneru was another one that had come in a few times. But that's what it was. It was a deal that uh, Baba wanted to uh, have the championship, and the deal was was that Nick would Nick was on tour and he was going to go to Japan, and he dropped the title in in Japan mm-hmm. to uh, Sharuda. 
And Terry Funk was the referee for that match. Yeah, that is right. That's uh, I, I was trying to think who the, the special referee was. Yeah, I was going to say Dory, but, but it was it was Terry. And then for a while, and of course, uh, Tommy, you know, gave way to Rick Martell, and Rick Martell, of course, had a run. Uh, as champion before uh, falling to Stan Hansen, which was kind of another uh, Jap- uh, set up again with the Japanese promotions. Well, and you know what what we're doing there is, and again, because by 1984, when when the the first uh, grenade was thrown by Vince McMahon to start his national expansion, you know we know in history now, and we lived it at the time, but in hindsight, we know that in '84 that was when he stole. Uh, took Hulk Hogan. You know, some people say he stole him. Some people say that Hogan worked out the deal with him. Some people say McMahon. You know, at this point, McMahon took Hogan. Yeah. And uh, no, no, Hogan no left. different than the way he cherry picked uh, some of the other stars from uh, the other territories, helping those territories basically spiral down. Well, exactly. And you know, Vince went in and he took some key players from all of the big territories. You know, when he went into Mid South, he took the Junkyard Dog and he took uh, the Freebirds. From he took Ted DiBiase from Mid South. Hacksaw Duggan took Hacksaw Duggan, and he took. Um, he had actually, and you know, we're talking about Nick Bockwinkle here today. So let me point this out that before Vince McMahon approached, got the idea to put the million-dollar man gimmick on Ted DiBiase, he did approach Nick Bockwinkle that, to become the million-dollar man. Wow, that I could see that. that now, that. Nick, you got to keep in mind that this is in that later 80s point already, 86, 7, whatever it was, the time frame. His last run as champ. And Nick was having his last run as champion. Nick always told me, he said, you know, when I retire, I'm not going to make any real big deal of it. You know, what's the big deal about retiring? But he said, you know, it, my body's going to tell me when it's time. And Nick was wise in the respect that I saw many wrestlers over the years who I thought lived in the ring beyond their great years. And mm. when they did... It wasn't that they couldn't still draw the people because obviously when the crusher was close to 60, he was still putting butts in the seat based on he was the crusher. But it wasn't the same crusher that we'd remembered from a decade earlier as far as what his in-ring work was and what he was able to do and and also physically how he looked. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you looked at the crusher in 1985 and 86, he wasn't the crusher that he was even seven, eight, ten years earlier. Mm-hmm. Different, different build. He's, you could tell he was an older man. Yeah, time Pat moved O'Connor time stayed moved in the ring long after his good years. Dick the Bruiser, we know, did because Dick the Bruiser didn't. You know, he didn't want to quit. He was putting Dick the Bruiser over. But Nick was different. You know, that we pointed to that match between Kurt Hennig earlier in 87 and that was nick's last hurrah and he put kurt over and kurt hennig and nick bockwinkle i i'm going to challenge uh listeners again to go out and look at youtube and look at i think there's two matches out there i second that and those are the matches you want to see because the the younger generation was learning from the veteran at this point kurt learning from nick and nick still every bit 
a credit. Nick was one of those rare phenomenons where even though he was 53 years old, he could still go an hour. Mm-hmm. And he didn't look like he was an old man at that point. So that was rare because a lot of times, like I pointed to the bruiser, Dick the Bruiser earlier, Dick the Bruiser, when he was 53, he looked like he was 63. Yeah, he was and, real you know, hard. You get him in the ring and fans go, oh, this guy's old. <laughs> but he was still, he was still again, that name value from the fans that followed the careers. Dick the Bruiser's on the card. <laughs> now, Nick Nick uh, shortly retired uh, after uh, working that Super Clash match with Kurt Henning and kind of handing the torch over uh, in the form of the AWA title. But Nick ended up uh, doing some work uh, for Vince uh, for a couple of years there didn't before he went into the private sector. He did Nick some, did. He, yeah. he went and worked for Vince. Obviously, his active career was over, and he went and worked for Vince in the road agent ca- uh, capacity. What Vince was doing in that, that time frame was... He was running uh, various cards. They were still doing, a, you know, a fair amount of house shows at that point. And this was really, you know, you got to keep in mind the infancy at this point of pay-per-view. We'd had WrestleMania in 85, but pay-per-views were still relatively new. And so Vince was still running um, usually two and three and four cards, sometimes on the same night. And what he what he had to do was he had what he called road agents. And for lack of a better term, as Nick told me, he says, you know, we were babysitters to the wrestlers. We had to make sure that they didn't go out and, you know, get wasted every night and not be able to come to, to work the next day and make sure they're, they're home in Betty by, as Nick said one time. <laughs> That's what the road agent did. And make sure that they're there in town when they're supposed to and, and and whoever was assigned to this particular group of wrestlers, they would travel with the with the group, and that's what Nick did for a couple of years. And then he um, he did go into. Um, we should go back and say that when he was uh, at Oklahoma, he had majored in marketing before wrestling. Very smart to have a fallback. So he he had he had a degree, and as his retirement years came on, he did go work in the financial industry. Um, selling annuities and things like that for a few years. And, and I don't know how successful it was, but he did it. And then, you know, as most do, he finally settled in and, and relaxed. And then as, you know, the last, and, and here's the thing that's really sad because this leads up now to, we've, we've seen a guy who had such a storied career and really was, uh, anybody you talk to, they will tell you that Nick Bockwinkel was, the epitome of the wrestler. He, he, he believed in representing the sport with, with dignity. And as we talked earlier, you know, always dressing well and talking well. And, and, uh, he, um, the last, oh boy, four, five years, six years, the Alzheimer's started to come on. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, Glenn, you know, that, that, illness, that disease is, it's just got to be the most, it is the most awful thing in the whole world when your, your mind is literally your memories, your ability to, to think they're taken from you. And I, I don't know about you, but I can say for me that I'd rather drop dead today than have to face that for three or four or five or 
six years, ten years before I die. It's such I, I just I and and then the caregivers and the people that have to, you know, Darlene, his wife, the last two years, God bless her because she has had her hands full. The sad thing for for me, I put on my fan's hat. You know, I knew Nick personally. I knew him as a friend. We could talk one on one. From a fan standpoint, I saw the decline, and that really hurt. Every time you saw him, you just kind of go, oh, man. You, you just feel like there's a part of you being drained out. Mm-hmm. And this past Christmas, we're almost a year ago now, but this past Christmas was the first Christmas in over 25 years that I had not received a phone call from Nick, a personal phone call from Nick to our home, wishing us a Merry Christmas oh, wow. from the Bachwinkle. And every Christmas, it was, it was either the week of Christmas, you know, leading up to it, or it, sometimes it was on Christmas Eve day. There were times when it was Christmas morning. But during Christmas, I would answer the phone, and I'd get, and I'll tell you, this is what he'd say. Georgie, Nicholas Bach, <laughs> I just wanted to wish the Shires a Merry Christmas from the Bachwinkles. And then, Glenn, we, he, you know, how's the family, he'd say. He uh-huh. always asked that. Classic. And that always amazed me. I was telling my daughters this the other night. I said, you know, I was always impressed that Nick would call whatever his purpose was. I mean, he did this other times during the year, too, through the last two and a half, three decades. When he'd call, he'd always ask first, "How are the? How's the family? How are the girls? Mm-hmm. How's Lorraine? You know, that's my wife. For those listening, mm-hmm. and he he always asked. And then we'd talk, and I'd say, "We're all great, Nick. You know, how about you? How, how's Darlene? What's going on? You know, we'd have that small talk." Mm-hmm. Last Christmas, I didn't get that call, oh, and one of my. Uh, Wrestling buddies, Roger Buck. I don't know if you know Roger Buck. I've, I've seen him on, online, yeah. But Roger Buck is a, a long, long-time personal friend of Nick Bockwinkle as well. And Roger was out visiting. He went out to him and his wife, Roger Buck and his wife, went and went out uh, this past holiday season and stayed with the Bockwinkles. And when Roger came home, he told me, he said, you know, Nick isn't Nick anymore. Darlene, my heart goes out to her. She's really got her hands full. And Nick was then, and Darlene was a little more quiet. God bless her. You know, this has got to be so hard to deal with. And Nick didn't get those calls anymore. And then Nick was with Cauliflower Alley this past April. Um, Darlene did bring him to Cauliflower. Mm -hmm. And he um, he was in a wheelchair. He had a walker. Looked a lot, yeah, I don't know, there's been some pictures that some have posted online from, from the cauliflower thing. And Nick wasn't always sure why he was there, and it was announced that he was stepping down as president of the Cauliflower Alley Club. And Darlene basically told the Cauliflower Alley banquet uh, at the banquet dinner that, you know, this would be Nick's last visit here. Oh, and so all of that, we could see that coming, you know, and and uh, in the past three, four, five months, it's been relatively quiet. Haven't heard anything. And it was ironic because Saturday night, 
I had been on, I had not been on the uh, internet since Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. We were busy, we were gone. And at about 10 after 8 on Saturday evening, and I have no idea why I said this, although I've kind of become accustomed to the fact that wrestlers are passing away more regularly, you know, mm-hmm. and I want to touch on one too when we are done here. But I had said to my wife, I said, well, I'm going to check the internet here real quick and make sure nobody died. And this was at 10 after 8. I was on the internet maybe, I don't know, half hour. Yeah. Later on that evening, we go to bed. I get up. I was up at 5 o'clock on Sunday morning. That's when I got on the internet and I saw that Nick had passed away the night before at 8.30 p.m. Isn't that crazy? No. Number one, it was a shock to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though we know he's been struggling, oh, my God, this is Nick Bockwinkle. This is my friend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, immediately I'm looking at different things on the site and trying to get, you know, the specifics. And um, it was about a half hour later, and, and my wife had gotten up, and she come around the corner in the kitchen, and she said, good morning. And I, I looked at her, and she goes, what's wrong? And I, I'm not lying here. I'm telling you. I looked at her, and I said, and I don't know if that's when it hit me, I said, I'm not doing good right now. And I had tears in my eyes. You know, so, because, and then I told her, I said, Nick died last night. Mm. And as I say it to you right now, I think back to that, and I think, you know, that's when it hit me. That's heavy. He was a legend. And anybody, any fan out there who saw Nick Bockwinkle during his almost four decades career, I am telling you, well, it was four decades. Um, you saw him wrestle. You absolutely saw the cream of the crop, the best of the best. You saw, and, and I say this, and I sometimes people think I'm being cute, but I say this, he will always be the champ. It's just that simple. I mean, he he was. And, he, you know, and then I look at my own, Everybody has personal favorite wrestlers. You know, yeah. we see them all. We love wrestlers. We love certain guys more than others. But we have, we always have that one or two or three guys that are just, they're in your heart. That, that just they're hits the you, man. Yeah. Well, I've got two. Two top ones. It was Dick Byer, Dr. X, the, the Destroyer, and Nick Bockwinkle. And I've got others, you know, Hard Boiled Haggerty and Harley Race and Larry Hennig and but, Billy but, Red Lions. And I mean, Doug Gilbert and Dutch Savage. And I can go down and name favorites. But if I pick out those two, Nick was that guy. Oh. And but you know the fans that saw him wrestle, I, I'm really serious, Glenn. They, if you didn't see him wrestle, I know there's video out there from the '80s, maybe the late '70s that you can get and YouTube. listen to his interviews. Oh boy, he was the de- he was the real deal. And when you talk about the guys that respected him. Billy Robinson, and Glenn, I'll, I'll do a flashback for you. You and I, on one of our very first Wrestling Memories shows, we, enter, we had Billy Robinson on with us, you may recall. Absolutely. And during that interview, Billy Robinson stated that one of his favorite opponents, favorite guys to wrestle, to work with, was Nick Bockwinkle. Oh, they made magic together. And when a wrestler says that about another wrestler, that's the highest compliment you can get. 
when when you when they say that yeah I liked working with him you know there's that magic and Nick was just you know so the wrestling business the wrestling world has lost a very very dear friend for me and for so many his family God bless his wife Darlene he's got two daughters um, all his many friends I mean We've lost it. We've lost a legend. Absolutely. God bless. God bless you, Nick Bockwinkle. George, we only have a, a little bit left here, and we we, we can mention this uh, another a passing in pro wrestling. Kind of, uh, you know, we're not trying to be insensitive, but time time constraints. But uh, we did lose uh, one of the the fabulous Fargos, Don Fargo, here just a couple of weeks back. And you want to talk about a guy who led an interesting pro wrestling career, interesting life in general. This was a guy whose uh, career went back to the days of the Dumont Network. Well, and you know, the thing about Don Colt, K-A-L-T, Don Colt, he he wasn't a Nick Bockwinkle in in the way that he was the arrogant cocky or he wasn't uh, the best dresser in town but Don Fargo you saw his early his early career he had a bo- he was a, uh, he had almost like a bodybuilder build he had actually won some uh, uh bodybuilder titles and when he started wrestling you know he started imitating guys like Buddy Rogers and he was one of those guys that could go to a territory and pick up different wrestlers styles and gimmicks and put it in there, there has been talk out there that Don Fargo, Don, he, his most famous name was Don Fargo, mm-hmm. but that, that he had over 18 different names in wrestling. I have been able to personally come up with 10 of them. That's pretty impressive. I think 18 might be exaggerated because wrestling has never been exaggerated. Never, never, never. Liberties have never been taken in but pro I wrestling. But I mean, um, every name that he worked under... He was a main eventer. He was, and he traveled. He he was a he was a gypsy by by the very nature of the word gypsy. <laughs> he couldn't stay in one place at the same time. He was a wild guy. He was known to do drugs. He was known to drink and party. He was known to, but he was a great worker in the ring. Very similar in comparison. And I don't say Ray Stevens because of drugs or anything like that. But Ray Stevens, he enjoyed to party. And they worked and together Stevens, too. So. And they did work together as Ray and Don Stevens. They were the brothers. Mm-hmm. And that was one of uh, Don's, Don Fargo's personas. But Don Fargo, I mean, he had AWA fans will remember in the late 60s when the chain gang came to town, Jack Dillinger and brother Frank Dillinger. And it was Jack, Jack Dillinger was Donnie Fargo. And they were Hells Angels bikers is what they were. You go back and look at uh, you can. I think they're probably something on YouTube. Yeah, and then, but, and then there was that story too when they went under that Hell's Angels moniker. How they got heat from the actual Hell's Angels. That's another good story for another time. Well, they sure did, and you know, but the, Don Fargo, um, he of all the people who were in the wrestling business, he was he was respected by his peers, but he was a, he was definitely a different person. At the end, he lived in a trailer park with his umpteen dogs and uh and his wife and uh but he he was he was a draw he was a character and uh he he could go into a territory and take on a new gimmick and one thing about him was he was so good about living the gimmick when he was the dillingers he was you know the biker when he when he went in into texas and he was jack dalton of the dirty daltons he was a 
uh, cowboy with pistols, the six guns on their side, and they were they showed him robbing, you know, on the trains, going to rob the train, the bad guys. And I mean, he just played so many parts. He was a great method actor, good in-ring guy, and he will definitely be missed. George, we have gone uh, almost the full 90 minutes. I think Nick would probably like the fact that we went a 90-minute Broadway talking mostly about him and honoring him. I just want to say that God bless you, Nick, and thank you, man, for all the memories. I'm of the opinion that when we have a smile on our face, when we can think of you or any person that leaves us, and we have memories that make us smile, you're always with us. But you are always the champ. Thank you, champ, for some many uh, great memories of, of a, for a young kid like me watching when I was five, six years old, seeing Nick Bockwinkle. It wasn't uh, right for me. I knew I was fighting something. It wasn't right for me to like the heel, but, man, he was so convincing. I love Nick Bockwinkle, and uh, I'm going to miss him. And thank, thankfully, through the power of social media and uh, things like YouTube and Daily Motion and the network, we'll be able to to watch some of Nick's stuff. There's probably so much more of it that we'll never be able to see due to uh, film just not being there. But, Nick, we, we're going to miss you. We love you. And thank you for all of your great years in the business, both in and out of it. George, my friend, it was fun getting back together with you, albeit under some sad circumstances. But you know what? We'll pop up from time to time. with uh, we'll, we'll try to get happy once in a while here. Well, we were down memory lane, and we had a lot of fun talk along the way. And, yes, we had to end it with, or started and end it with the passing. But all the stories we were able to tell in between about Nicholas Bockwinkle. And, man, I love it. So, yeah. Thank you, Glenn. We will talk soon for Rasslin' Memories. For Rasslin' Memories, I'm Glenn Brockett.